The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We're going to continue in our study of the book of Titus this morning. Uh, we, we started this last week looking at the first four verses, looking at how um, really when, when Paul wrote this letter to Titus, he's, he's encouraging him in, in what the church is supposed to be, uh, God's, God's people receiving God's salvation and God's timing. And uh, he wrote this to this pastor Titus because Titus was a leader in a number of house churches on an, on an island called Crete. And Crete was known for immoral behavior. It was notorious for immoral behavior, as we just read there. And the reason why Paul was writing this letter to Titus is because uh, some of this immoral behavior had continued in their life together as a church. There, There were some issues to do with the way that they were behaving, and it really stemmed from some false teaching that had distracted them from from actually what they were meant to be doing as, as Christians, which is keeping the gospel central. As always, like in Crete and like here today, we have to walk the fine, that fine line of, or we have to walk that balance of, of leaving our old lives behind and walking in the new life of Christ. And in our passage this morning, Paul is going to kind of hit these issues head on. He's going to, he's going to really hit these issues head on, the issues that were happening there in the island of Crete. And he's going to tell Titus what needs to be done about it, which is to appoint elders in the church. Now, this is a really important passage for understanding what eldership is. In verses 5 to 9, Paul gives Titus instructions of what to look out for in potential elders that he needs to appoint to to leadership in this church. And then in verses 10 to 16, uh, those verses contain all of the reasons why he needs to appoint elders. In other words, he's saying, Titus, there are some significant problems in the church. What you need are elders. And so we're going to look at this passage in a little bit of uh, reverse. So we're going to look at these problems first. Look at what what this church is enduring at that time. And then we're going to come back and see how elders are to basically deal with this. Why Titus should should, uh, appoint elders. So let's pray. And then we'll get into it. Lord, we ask that as you shine on us in your word this morning, that we would not be blind to your grace, that we would not willfully seek darkness. Lord, instead we ask that you would rouse us by your word, that you would stir us up by your Holy Spirit. You would stir us up more and more to fear the name of the Lord and to rejoice at your love and your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Lord, may you cause us to be eager to obey you, eager to do good works, not begrudging in our obedience, Lord, but eager and joyful as we seek to put you first, Father. So show us your glory this morning in your word. Amen. When I was a a kid, I used to love playing the game Capture the Flag where what you've got to do, you get two teams and each team has a flag and you've got to protect your flag and try and steal the other team's flag and do everything you can to steal their flag and whoever steals their flag and brings it back to theirs wins. Now in my experience, the team that normally wins is the team that can come up with and execute a, a, thought, a thought-through strategy. Of, like, you, know, you need some people to guard it, you need some people to go and take some ground. 
And the team that normally loses is a team where there's no strategy. Everybody just runs chaotically everywhere doing what they want. And normally that team is the team that loses. Well, the church has something that it needs to guard. It needs to be guarded. And that is the message of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the best news that we need to hear. Because Jesus is the eternal God of the universe who took on flesh. He took flesh to himself and he came and he dwelt amongst his, his creation. He dwelt amongst mankind. And in Jesus, we have the perfect embodiment of who God is. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. God is a God who loves us despite how wretched we are. He cares for us regardless of the fact that we spend so much time caring only about ourselves and not for others. And he is faithful to us when we are faithless. He is patient with us when we are reckless. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the entire punishment for every sin that had ever been committed onto himself so that anyone who comes to him will no longer be held accountable for their sin. It all goes on to him. And more than that, those who come to him will receive in exchange his perfect record as if it was their own, and they will be rewarded with the righteousness of God forever. And that's good news. That's, that's the best news. Because sin is the, is the problem underneath every single problem you and I have ever faced. It's the problem underneath all of our problems. And Jesus came to abolish sin and its eternal consequences of death. You see, sin coronates us as king and queen of our own lives. Sin puts us in the center of the universe. Sin says, this is all about you. And the problems begin there and get a whole lot worse because we make terrible kings and queens. We're not good when it comes to being in charge of our own lives. But the gospel coronates Jesus Christ as our king and puts him at the center of our universe. And he is a far better king than you or I. He's a far better Lord than us. Jesus is the best news we could ever hear. Like if you've ever thought to yourself, I need that job, I need that career, I need that income, I need that body, I need that relationship, I need that house, I need that lifestyle, and if I don't get those things, then I'm nothing. Our world certainly wants us to buy into that. If I don't have that, then I'm nothing. And we can feel depressed. If that's you, hear this. Jesus doesn't think you're nothing. Jesus doesn't care if you've made it or not. He loves you right now as you are. He's not waiting for you to get a little bit better before he can start loving you. He loves you right now as you are. If you're here thinking, oh yeah, but as long as I can get rid of that addiction, then God will love me. No, he loves you right now as you are. That's because of his endless grace towards you. If you don't feel like you really measure up to other people, like you look around at your friends and other people around you and everyone else seems to be handling life just fine, but you're drowning and you're blaming yourself for, it, for that. Well, God really cares about you. 
God really cares about your situation and he really cares about how you feel. And by his grace, he lifts us out of the pit that we find ourselves in. Or maybe you're walking through tough times. Like the the valley of the shadow of death has become very real to you recently, like really tough times. And you feel alone and isolated. You're not alone. Jesus comes to us and comforts us in our affliction. You are not alone. For he is with us. Maybe your life, you just feel like in your life, it's just riddled with guilt and shame. And you think back on the things that have been done, whether it's things that you have done, the sin that you have committed, or the sin that's been committed against you, or just the sin that's just been happening around you, and your life is riddled with guilt and shame. There's all these things about you that you about your life. Every time you, like, there's not a day that goes past where you don't think about that thing, that moment, that season, and it just casts a dark cloud over your life, and you're you're carrying this heavy, heavy darkness with you, and you think, like, if if these people around me who are sitting here this morning, if they knew of... If they knew of this darkness, if they knew of my past, they would not want to be sitting near me right now. You need to hear that Jesus knows exactly who you are. And who you are has not scared him off. In fact, our guilt and shame causes him to draw closer to us. And he burdens our guilt and shame. He removes our sin from us. And he cleanses us from all of our guilt and shame. And we need to guard that. We need to guard the gospel because there is so much temptation in our own hearts to try and survive without Jesus, to take God's work of salvation into our hands, to try and do for ourselves what only God can do for us, to to abolish our sins. Our hearts are so bent towards being in control, towards being the center, that if we just get a little bit of a whiff that there is a way to be righteous without Jesus Christ, we'll have a go at it just to just so we can feel righteous. We can feel like our, our lives are right, like this, like we, we've been able to make ourselves right before God. I've been personally just really convicted lately about how easy it is for me to carry bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart, to to carry that around and how that just spews onto other relationships. And what I've noticed is that as I've carried unforgiveness in in my heart, as I carry bitterness, that makes me feel righteous in this strange, twisted way. You see, by my bitterness casts me as the victim. And therefore, I can't do anything wrong because this horrible thing has already been done against me. And even if I do do something wrong, then I've got something to blame. And it's a false righteousness. It's an artificial righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. It's not true righteousness. It doesn't actually make me right before God. The only way that I can be made right before God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. who who took away my sin and washed me clean. Can you see why we need to guard this message? Because we're not just guarding it from outside the church, we're guarding this message from our own hearts. We need to to hear the gospel again and again. We need to, to preach the gospel again and again. We are so prone to forget this. And so the way that Paul instructs Titus 
to protect the message of the gospel of grace. He says, establish elders, appoint elders in the church who can protect the message of the gospel of Jesus by being examples to the church of the power of Jesus in their own lives and by teaching and encouraging others in it. Now, now really importantly, when we read this passage in verse 5, that's a critical verse because it's telling us that Eldership is not, uh, appointing elders in the church, that's not just to solve one specific problem in this church, which is what was going on here. It's actually an essential part of every church. Paul left Titus in Crete to set, in, in Crete, sorry, not in Crete, in Crete, to set right what was left undone. Meaning that it was Paul's intention, as it was in all of the New Testament churches, to appoint elders in Crete. But since Paul had been called to Ephesus to deal with the problems in the church there, he left Titus behind to finish the job, to appoint elders to the task of serving the church by leading the church as an example of the power of grace in people's lives. See, the Bible teaches that elders are tasked to help shoulder the burden of leading God's people. And they were appointed to oversee the church to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of preaching the word. And just to give you a bit of insight into where we are at as a church and to what we've been doing, we planted this church a little bit more than four years ago with the intention of, right from the start, of raising up an eldership team to serve this church and to lead this church. However, we didn't begin with a team. It was just myself and, and my wife, Kirsty, came and joined, uh, well, obviously, I planted this church together. But being, um, because we didn't begin with a team and being sent by a Life Center Church Northlakes, we entered into what we call a, a family of churches, which is interdependent churches who share critical resources to help church plants get off the ground. And central to that, those shared resources is a shared eldership team, which both churches sit under. And that's currently made up of Pastor Kylan Lewis, who preached for us a little bit, a bit more than a month ago, um, Trevor Little, who some of you will know, uh, Shane Corrigan now is officially an elder at, um, at part of the eldership team over both churches and myself. And you guys will know Shane if you've been put, we're part of that. Shane and his wife Lauren drove up from Brisbane every Sunday to help us for the first year to get this church started. So he's now an elder on this team as well. And the goal for us has always been to raise up our own team of qualified men who can serve the church as elders. In the same way that Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, that's plural, in every town where these house churches were, we believe that a church functions best and flourishes when it follows this biblical pattern of a team or a plurality of local elders. So this is the reason why Paul left Titus in Crete but then Paul started to hear about the state of things in the churches that were there, and so he wrote to Titus to emphasize the importance of eldership in the church. So let's, let's look at the, the, what occasioned this letter. Let's see what was happening here. And so we'll jump down to verse 10. Basically, and to, and to sum up these verses, there are a group of people known as the circumcision party that Paul had actually dealt with on a number of other occasions. And they had entered the church... And they had started teaching that it wasn't enough to simply have faith in Christ in order to be saved. You had to have additional merit before God. 
to, to come before God. You had to be, to be righteous. You had to, uh, you had to do extra things. Jesus wasn't enough. Like if you wanted to be a Christian, if you wanted to be one of God's people, faith was a good start, but you needed to do more. Otherwise, you weren't part of the family of God. They were taking the commands from the Torah, which Jesus had already fulfilled on our behalf, and insisting that these commands needed to be added to the faith. And Paul refers to these additions as Jewish myths. But it wasn't just the content of their teaching that, was, um, that bothered Paul. It was their motivation, and it was their own conduct, which Paul particularly goes after here. He says there are many rebellious people, and this word rebellious means insubordinate and unwilling to learn, unwilling to be subject to authority. These are people who can never admit that they are wrong. What's more is that these people, he says, are full of empty talk and deceit. They engage in foolish and endless debates about things that just aren't important, and they twist words to their their own ends. And by doing this, they were ruining entire households. They were derailing people's faith, and they just didn't care. It wasn't that they were sincere in their beliefs. All they cared about was their own agenda. All they cared about was themselves. And they were using the churches there to accomplish their own ends and agenda. And so Paul says to Timothy, you need to rebuke them sharply. Don't beat around the bush, Titus. This needs to be quickly sorted out. Rebuke them sharply. And the reason why is not because because Paul wants Titus to beat them down in some kind of massive debate, not just so, so that Titus can stamp his own authority on the church, but so that this church can be found to be sound in the faith, including the people who are causing some of the grief. Paul wants them to be sound in the faith. And that word sound literally means healthy. The goal is not control or domination from Titus, but that this church would be healthy. You see, the problem with their teaching is that it it was disguised as a means of, a better means of producing good works in someone. And this is certainly a tricky thing to distinguish between because it is obviously, it is the goal for us as Christians to grow in godliness. That, that as we become more and more like Jesus, we, we increase in our glad and joyful obedience to him. But these people, they had the order backwards. They were teaching, you've got to obey first and then God will love you. You've got to obey first and then you will be saved. They were teaching that you could actually purify yourself. And by making yourself more acceptable to God, you are gaining uh, greater eternal security. But this is just not how things work. We can't do anything to ourselves to purify ourselves from our sin. We can't do anything, we can't erase enough mistakes or do enough good works to make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. Being made righteous and pure in God's sight is a matter of coming to Jesus with the empty hands of faith and asking Jesus, would you clean me up? Would you restore me? I've got nothing that I can do, that I can do this on my own. I've got nothing. And God is so eager to give us the righteousness of Jesus. We need to know this. God is not reluctant. He's not holding this up from us, waiting for us to ask nicely, He's not holding it at arm's length, waiting for us to be a little bit better. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, God loves you. 
He wants you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. God is standing at the gate and he is waiting for you to return home. He cannot wait to have you back. But what these people were teaching is that you can take all of this into your own hands. You can be in control here. As long as you do a few important things, namely circumcision, God would be happy and he wouldn't bother you. You could get God off your back. This is why this is such a problematic issue. Like, as I was thinking about this week, this, this, this week it, it's easy for us to go, well, what's really the big deal? Like, it, they're just kind of, it's just a couple of saying, you know, just be good. Like, surely that's, it's got the same kind of goal. Surely that's fine, right? But Paul says, they claim to know God, but by their works, they were denying him. Like, did you hear that? by their works, by their insistence that they could be good enough to to receive salvation. They were denying Jesus. They were denying the gospel. If you try and make yourself more savable, if you feel, if you believe that God can only love you if you just try it a bit harder, if you rely on your own righteousness of your own making, then you're actually denying Jesus. And the ironic thing about these people is that it wasn't actually producing in them a particular, they weren't a particularly pious group of people. They remained as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Because of their faith in their own works, they were still detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Here's the thing. If we try and add, work, add in works in order to try and be to try and improve our eternal standing, it doesn't actually improve anything. It undermines our eternal standing. See, what they were doing, they were saying, just tick a couple of these boxes, just get a few of these things right, God will be off your back, you'll, you'll, you'll make him happy, and then you can do whatever you want. And, and because they were taking righteousness into their own hands, it was an incomplete righteousness. They, they, they weren't able to be, to be good. Do your best to perform, to be pure, and you'll fall helplessly and stupidly short. But go to the cross to be made clean. And God will begin a work in you that won't stop. God will begin a work in you that by his Holy Spirit, he will continually grow us into people who obey him gladly and joyfully. And there's no end to that, right? I don't know how long, uh, in our church, I don't know who has been the Christian the longest. But I'm sure if you've asked that, if you ask that person, they will still say, yeah, God's still got work to do. There's still work to do in me. God's still growing me. He's still teaching me. It's wonderful, right? When we come to Jesus, we don't bring our resumes. We don't bring our highlight reels. We don't come with a clever argument or with excuses. We come to him with nothing. We come to him with nothing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, I've just, I'm kind of interested in this, but I've, kind of, I've got to get a few things sorted out first. No, you don't. What we come to him with is nothing except for the sin that has separated us from God. And Jesus welcomes us. Jesus cleanses us. He, he takes our sin away from us. He restores us. And he, he sets us on the path of who we were supposed to be. And this path of restoration is the path that every single believer is on. We're not who we should be yet, but we're, we're further than we once were. This is the problem that was rife 
in the church in Crete. They, they weren't worshipping the God of grace. They were instead just trying to get him off their backs. So what was the solution for this problem? Well, this is what Paul talks about in verses 5 to 9, which is we're going to turn now. The solution was to appoint elders, healthy, godly leaders who would serve the church by laying down their lives for the church as incarnate examples of what a life filled with the grace of God looks like. When you look down this list of requirements of elders in the church, what I think should occur to us is that we're not looking at a list that is all too different of what should be required of a Christian. Elders aren't meant to be super disciples here, but rather those who are willing to launch themselves headfirst into their own discipleship for the sake of taking the church by the hand and leading the church deeper into their own discipleship that they are being examples to the flock to lead the church in righteousness and sanctification. So reading from verse 6, Paul says, An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Now it serves to mention here, just in case you're unaware, and this is something that we don't at all hide, um, but we talk about from time to time, that the position that we take as a church, for the official role of an elder is that it is for biblically qualified men only. The husband of one wife is literally a one-woman man. When we read the qualifications required of elders here in Titus and a similar list in 1 Timothy 3, it seems clear that God has summoned, has summoned qualified men only to serve in the role of eldership. Eldership, as I hope we'll see, is not simply a matter of gifting or personality or passion, but is a divinely appointed role and distinct position within the organizational structure of the local church. We believe that biblical eldership is God's design for the flourishing and benefit of God's people. And so we as a church want to believe, we, we, want, sorry, we want to follow what we believe the truth of Scripture calls us to do. Now, there are, of course, absolutely wise, conscientious, godly, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who would disagree with us on that. And if that's you and you're here, we love you. You are still my brother. You are still my sister in the faith. This is not a primary issue. But this is where we stand as a church. This is where we believe, what we believe the Bible teaches us uh, that we should obey as a church. Further... I'm fully aware that taking this position as a church, it doesn't fare favorably in, in our part of the world, particularly at this present moment. But we are committed to the truth of Scripture and to the obedience to God more than trying to fit in with the world around us. And so that will hopefully just give you a bit of a background of how I believe this passage should be interpreted. Now, Paul says that an elder should be blameless. And straight away, we've got to ask, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because it's repeated again in verse 7. We, we can't skip past this word. Now, Paul cannot mean that an elder has to be sinless because then no one would qualify for the task. The word that he uses here means to be above reproach or free from accusation. That is, someone for whom there is no obvious reason to accuse for living inconsistently 
with his faith commitments. When people look at an elder's life, there shouldn't be anything about him that is plain and obvious to others that suggests that he is intentionally living a life of sin, intentionally living a life that runs contrary to the gospel of grace. Because if there is sin in his life and it's not dealt with, if he doesn't repent of that, if it's accepted, then that sin becomes sanctioned as being an okay sin for other believers in the church to follow. So, where there is sin, he goes after it with God's grace. He brings it to God in confession, and he always allows, he allows God's grace to heal him. This is what blameless means. Not sinless, but an intentional willingness to take his sin to God. And this first area of blamelessness has to do with relationships for marriage and for parenting. Now, there is a long and anxious history in the interpretation of what Paul is talking about here. So let me humbly put forward what I believe he's teaching us here. The requirement of blamelessness in marriage is that as a husband, if he is married, he must exhibit and demonstrate grace-filled godliness towards his wife such that others can see him doing so and follow his godly example. Is he loving his wife as Christ loved the church? Is he laying down his life for her so that she would be renewed by the grace of God? These are the questions we need to ask. Are there strong signs of the presence of of divine grace in his marriage? Is he living in faithful commitment to her? Is he committed to her discipleship, that she would be continually renewed after the image of Christ? Is his marriage strong in the grace of Jesus? These are the important requirements of elders as it pertains to being married. Now, a couple of big questions come for us straight away in this. Firstly, does an elder have to be married? Now, I don't believe that an elder has to be married to serve the church as an elder. Paul, who wrote this, was single. And there is little evidence to suggest that Titus was married or that Timothy was married, and Timothy received a similar list of instructions as he was leading the church in Ephesus. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul describes singleness as being of incredible value to ministry. So my understanding of this is that Paul is assuming that uh, what was no- assuming what was normal for men in, the, in that day, that they were married, and so was given the requirements on the kind of marriage we should expect to see an elder have. A second question is whether or not the language of husband of one wife precludes men who have been divorced from becoming elders. Now, this is obviously a very sensitive issue, a very sensitive topic, and again, there might be disagreement on this. The important thing here is the word blameless that frames this section, that he's above reproach, that there's nothing obvious in his life that would compromise the witness of the gospel. This means that there are a lot of other considerations here. Important questions need to be lovingly asked, such as whether or not the divorce was on biblical grounds or not, whether there is a history of infidelity, how much time has passed since the divorce, or whether or not the divorce happened before that person was, uh, was converted to faith in Christ. I don't believe that this is a, a black and white issue that we can necessarily just answer yes or no and that be done with it, nor do I, nor do I believe that there is a specific formula that the Bible gives us that we must follow. 
My answer to this question then is that yes, a man who has been divorced, I believe, can be an elder, but there are a lot of factors that have to be considered, and it would be a case-by-case scenario. As always, the bottom line is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our church community is marked by grace. The second requirement of blamelessness in relationships comes down to parenting. Paul says that elders are to have faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. The term that Paul uses here for children is this Greek word technon, and it generally relates to children who are still living under the care of their parents. So I don't believe here that Paul is talking about our fathers whose children have grown up and then rejected their faith. Rather, the intentional teaching and modeling of faith to the children in the home is evident in the child's life. The parent is exerting loving discipline on them and not letting them be wild and disobedient. We live in a world where it's becoming normal to outsource our responsibility as parents to other people, to organizations, to screens, and even to our teachers. And teachers have a, an awful lot of uh, weight on them with this. But an elder should treat his family as his primary ministry to disciple them and to love them with God's grace, not abdicating his responsibility at all, but forging the tough road ahead as an example for others to follow. The bottom line requirement of elders is that the grace of Jesus Christ is evident in their personal relationships, and others can follow them as men who are maintaining the standards that God's gracious call to obedience requires of them. In verse 7 then, moving forward, Paul again uses this word blamelessness, blameless to frame the qualifications of an elder as it pertains to his character. He says, As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, nor greedy for money. To be arrogant here literally means pleasing himself or self-willed. This is someone who can only think of themselves. He's an expert in his needs and rights, and he's unconcerned about the rights of others. A hot-tempered person is someone who is inclined to anger unnecessarily. An excessive drinker is someone who doesn't know how to stop after one or two drinks and doesn't know the, the, how devastating drink can lead, the devastating consequences of too much drink. A bully is someone who is inclined towards intimidation to get his own way and is always looking for a fight. And to not be greedy for money is that they're not cheating anyone. They're not cheating the poor and they're also not cheating the rich or large corporations doesn't matter who it is, they're not cheating anybody for money. They're not greedy for money. Equally, he must be hospitable. He needs to be able to open up his home and open up his life with generosity to friends and strangers alike. An elder must love what is good. He needs to be able to identify the things in life that are distasteful, that are, that are bad, and reject them. He must be sensible. That is, he needs to be disciplined and mature, not the kind of person who is given over to foolish behavior. He must be righteous. God's proper and righteous standards and actions are, first of all, imputed to him by Jesus Christ and then exemplified in his obedient response to the grace of Jesus. He must be holy, meaning devout and pious. He needs to take God's law seriously. 
And finally, he must be self-controlled. He needs to rigorously apply and discipline his heart in the means of grace that has been provided for us to grow in godliness. I love this quote by Kent Hughes. Speaking of this passage, he says, A Christian leader's example demonstrates to others that the gospel and its power are real. An elder is not someone who has unlocked some special deposit of the faith that is just for elders. And it's not that they've drunk the magic potion and they are somehow now a perfect specimen. Rather, an elder is a sinner who has been saved by Jesus and he leads others into the depths of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's kindness and God's love. He knows the saving and sanctifying power of the grace of Jesus Christ and his desire is to lead the church into nothing short of that power. This is why Paul finishes this list by saying that an elder is one who holds to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Here's this word sound again, this word healthy. The point here is that healthy doctrine, healthy, healthy teaching leads to a healthy faith, leads to a healthy church. An elder needs to hold firm to the faithful message of grace that is taught in the church, even and especially when the temptation is to abandon the gospel of grace in favor of other things that might seem a bit more relevant. If he holds firm to it, he will be able to encourage the congregation with the gospel of grace and with sound teaching. And that word encouragement isn't just, isn't just like a boost, isn't just like a, you can do it. That word encouragement is the Greek word parakaleo, means to comfort. The gospel brings comfort. The gospel comforts us in our afflictions. As an elder, he must be able to defend the gospel. He needs to be able to refute those who contradict the gospel. He needs to be able to identify when a sheep is strained from the fold and when doctrine that is opposite to the gospel is being adopted by people in the church. He must be able to not only exegete scripture but also to be able to exegete culture and refute any attempt to water down the gospel of grace. <clears throat> Here's the bottom line. The gospel of grace is precious and it needs to be guarded. The reason why is because we as fickle humans can so easily abandon it and take our salvation and healing into our own hands. And if we do that, we will fail. The hope of the world is the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He was raised three days later and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God where he rules forevermore. Jesus is our king. The hope of the world is the gospel of grace. We need to be unwavering on it. We need godly leaders who will be an example to the flock, who will teach the flock, and who will defend the flock. In allowing themselves to be an example, they are walking a hard path and navigating difficult contours of life and faith. They are to be examples to the rest of the church in their godliness, and at the same time, they must also be godly examples of how grace restores and repairs the wreck that sin creates in their hearts. An elder is not perfect by any metric, but he makes himself an example of what the grace of Jesus Christ does in someone's life. And like I said earlier, it's been our, great, it's been our goal to raise up such godly leaders, and I'm 
really pleased actually this morning to get to announce that we're underway with our first ever official eldership pipeline. Over the next few couple of years, um, a few guys in the church who I believe have the potential and the capacity to serve the church's elders will be, uh, will be meeting together on a regular basis for training and equipping for eldership. They'll be learning what it takes to lead God's people and God's church in this way, growing in their faith and, and having opportunities to, to serve the church in the way that God calls his shepherds to serve and to lead. Uh, <clears throat> this is a process that started with these guys about four or five months ago, and um, we've been, uh, we're at that point where well, we, we've been praying together, we've been talking together, we've been meeting together. What is, what is eldership? What does this actually look like? And we're at the point where I think it's appropriate now that we get to announce um, who this group of guys is. And so that's um, Jared Collins, Jared Thomas, and Michael Dunster. These guys have raised their hands to serve the church in this way. And my hope is that over the next couple of years, as we spend some significant time together, they will grow into this important role in the church. And that as a church, we would commit ourselves to praying for these three guys and for their wives, Lauren Ainsley and Alex. To be clear, these guys are not elders yet. They're what we will call elder candidates. There is a long and steep path ahead of them as we discern the call of God upon their lives to lead and serve the church in this way. And my hope is that we will grow in this as a church and that we'll have the opportunity to have more men, qualified, biblically qualified men, join this team. We've got to be real clear here about this. This is God's church. We want to be obedient to what God is calling us to do. If God is calling these guys to be elders, as, uh, to be elders in this church, they and we as a church need to be obedient to God on that. If God is not calling them to be elders in this church, then they and we need to be obedient to, God's, uh, obedient to God's call on that. My hope is that God will continue to grow these guys, continue to grow us as a church, and we'll, conti- we'll continue to see them step up as we already have seen them doing, and they will have other opportunities to raise up godly elders and leaders in this church. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.